Welcome to the Today is the Day podcast, where we take a deep dive into popular health topics and empower you to make informed, evidence-based decisions. We offer practical tools and strategies so you can easily integrate what you learn into your everyday habits. And today is the day we're diving into the strangely contentious topic of gluten. Ultimately, we're going to answer for you the question of whether gluten-free eating is just a passing fad or if there's actual evidence to support whether this vilified little group of proteins really should be avoided. We'll be covering what gluten actually is, the different types of responses in the body, why there seems to be an increase in gluten sensitivity, and is this even real? What portion of the population is actually reacting to gluten? Why for some people, eliminating gluten may not be enough? When eliminated, how long it takes to see results? and our best tips on how to help you stick to a gluten-free diet. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to all of you who've been leaving us ratings and reviews and sharing our podcast with your friends. Our reason for doing this is to get the information out there and you are helping us do it. I'm Megan Telbner, a nutritionist, two-time best-selling author, and founder of the Academy of Culinary Nutrition, where we offer a 14-week certification program in culinary nutrition. Join me as always is my husband, the smartest nutritionist I know, and the man with the best head of hair in the room, Josh Catalis. Thank you for the shout out on my lid, Megan. Anytime. Hi, everyone. I'm a clinical nutritionist and functional medicine practitioner with a clinic in downtown Toronto. I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Certification Program and an instructor with the Academy of Culinary Nutrition. Of all of the health transitions that have happened in this last decade, this mass movement away from wheat and specifically the avoidance of gluten has blown up. It's kind of crazy to have seen this unfold. I first went gluten-free in 1995. That's how many? 55 years ago? Something like that? My math might be (laughs) off. But it was impossible to live a healthful diet on gluten, like a healthful gluten-free diet, or at least it seemed it. I basically lived off Quaker rice cakes. You couldn't find quinoa in the grocery store. I don't think I even knew what it was. You definitely could not find it on menus in restaurants. I remember the breads you could buy were so atrocious. And to say the options were limited would be a dramatic understatement. We now see dedicated gluten-free restaurants, bakeries, gluten-free symbols on the most generic of restaurants. It's never been easier to go gluten-free, and it's never been more controversial or mocked to be gluten-free, unless, of course, you have an actual diagnosis. But anyone says they're gluten-sensitive, they're usually not taken very seriously. And there's a lot of controversy about the gluten-free trend and tons of articles with doctors saying that it's unhealthy to remove gluten and all these things. And I think that it's getting both a bad rap and it's incredibly misunderstood. Absolutely. And usually when there's some sort of controversy in the nutrition world, everyone is a little bit right and a little bit wrong. So hopefully we can bring some clarity to that. Yes, you're exactly right when you say that. Yeah. So uh, not a little bit right and a little bit wrong. (laughs) You're 100% right. Let's start by just taking a step back for a moment and defining what gluten actually is. Right. Because I think this term just gets thrown around way too much and people don't even know what they're talking about. Or where to find it, which we will talk about as well. Right. So gluten is an umbrella term given to many different proteins that fall under that category. Right. And so gliadin 
is the protein we often hear about most often or most associated with that umbrella term of gluten. That's correct. Yeah. So there's actually hundreds of proteins in, for example, a wheat yes. kernel that we can react to. And a portion of those are glutens. Mm-hmm. And that's often what people will react to most severely. Is the, the gluten protein. So we find gluten or gluten proteins in a variety of different grains. However, not as many as most people think. So wheat is the most common one. It's the most dense source. The most dense source, but also, I mean, the most common in our diet. Absolutely. Most widespread. And most people who eat wheat are eating wheat three to five times a day. Basically, you know, toast or a bagel for breakfast, a muffin as a snack, maybe a sandwich or pizza or pasta for lunch, another cracker type snack. And then your dinner might have a bread roll or some kind of grain alongside a wheat containing grain or bread. We've established now that wheat has the highest concentration of gluten proteins, but there's other gluten-containing grains. Do you know what they are? I do, but please enlighten us, Megan. Okay. We have spelt and spelt and kamut, both of which are sort of types of wheat or part of the wheat family. And a lot of people assume these are better versions if they have a gluten sensitivity. Now, they do have lower concentrations of gluten than full-on wheat, but they are gluten-containing. So if you are reacting to gluten, you will react to spelt and kamut. Yeah, when I first learned about gluten and that wheat was the the main culprit of this high amount of gluten, I remember finding a kamut bread in the health food store I was working in and being so excited because it was so delicious. Yeah. Because I didn't even know a lot of this information yet. Right, I know, exactly. And it's like, we went through nutrition school and came out slightly confused That's why we're doing this podcast, because people are so confused. Yeah, well, you know what they say. The more you know, the more you realize you don't know. They do say that. (laughs) The other grains. So we've got wheat, spelt, kamut. There's also rye and barley. Mm. And so those are the five key gluten-containing grains. However, there's a little asterisk on the oats. Now, oats themselves are not gluten-containing, but are so often processed in the same facilities as gluten that if someone is celiac, and we'll get to the definition of that in a moment, but if someone is extremely reactive to gluten, a gluten contamination in oats would be enough to trigger a response in the body. So if you are buying oats, you want to ensure the package is gluten-free and says certified gluten-free on it. Something else to mention is if you are, again, extremely reactive, you want to avoid buying these grains and the flours that come from gluten-free grains in bulk bins because of that cross-contamination that can happen with those scoops and spoons and stuff in those bulk bins. So just a little side note on this. Well, you've told us the bad news that all those really great grains that we love have tons of gluten. So are there what's the good news here? The great news is that there's actually more grains that are gluten-free than that are gluten-containing, which I think a lot of people don't realize. They're just not as common in the North American or Westernized diet. So gluten-free grains include quinoa, all the kinds of rice. So white rice, brown rice, black rice, wild rice. Wild rice isn't even technically a grain, it's a grass. There's teff, there's millet, there's kaniwa, which no one knows about. It's actually not that delicious, but it's like the the little cousin of teff. Buckwheat is another one. And that's a confusing one because it has the word wheat in the name of it. It's actually a seed from the rhubarb plant, but you can have buckwheat raw. Well, not fully raw. You can 
soak it and dehydrate and have it as a granola. You can also roast the buckwheat and that's what we call kasha, which is very common in Eastern European dishes like a like a kasha and noodles, I think it is, where it's buckwheat and... Yeah, my grandmother used to actually make yeah. that dish. I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> but I introduced you to buckwheat and now you love it again. You did. You reintroduced it into my life and I'm now a lover. Yes. And, and also oats when they're gluten-free. So all of those grains can basically be made into flours, uh, can be cooked with. And additionally, a lot of cooking also requires extra starches. So you can look at things like arrowroot starch, tapioca starch, there's also cassava and cassava flour now available, corn and corn flour. I don't use a lot of cornstarch or potato starch just because of the glycemic load of them, but that's a conversation for another day. The point being, there is more food that we can eat that is gluten-free than contains gluten. It just might require a little bit of learning and research and trial and error and adjusting our tastes to be more accustomed to these whole grains that do have a more full-bodied flavor where Typically, wheat-based foods are just sweet. We're just tasting that starchy endosperm. Now, one question I get asked often is, if a bread is sprouted, can or does that take care of the gluten? Does that break it down? And I want to say that it doesn't. It right? doesn't. Like, I alter just want the to make that very, very clear because I remember when actually back in the day when I was working in the health food store, I had a colleague who was celiac, like very severe celiac, and all of a sudden she wasn't showing up at work for a few weeks. And when she finally came back, I said, hey, what was going on? She said, I, I got really sick because someone told me I could have sprouted bread and I tried it because I was so excited. And it just took me out of commission for weeks. Yeah, sprouted bread, it, I feel like it's almost one of those fooled by the label health foods. We didn't talk about that in that episode, but it also, that sprouting can make it more digestible, but can also inc increase the glycemic load of that bread, making it faster to absorb those sugars. So it can be a risky one for diabetics or pre-diabetics. Right. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Megan, but traditional bread making, when we're looking way, way back, wasn't that uh, like sourdough? Wasn't that the main form of they, bread making? Yes, they were fermenting it. And Acorn wheat is a wheat that we didn't mention. And a lot of people, and it was made popular in Wheat Belly, he talks a lot about this heritage grain of wheat that people apparently are less reactive to. It's more common in Europe. However, again, it does still contain gluten. The sourdough or the fermentation of breads can increase your digestibility. But since we're about to lead into gluten sensitivities and why they are potentially so much higher now. We're going to learn that even if they are fermented now, if you have a sensitivity, that's not going to resolve the issue. So if a grain contains gluten, no matter what you do to it, ferment it, sprout it. Yeah, those are basically the two other options yeah. and just cooking it straight. You will have a gluten reaction. So do you want to sort of move us toward the difference between gluten sensitivity, sort of the allergy component or celiac disease? Because I think that one of the biggest issues or challenges we see is with children having sensitivities and how difficult it is to test for that because we associate always the gluten reaction with something going on in the gut. And so with kids, they go for the standard testing. And again, we're going to talk about the testing as well and don't have full-blown intestinal damage that would diagnose them from a conventional medical standpoint as either celiac or having a gluten sensitivity. So Parents will carry on giving their kids gluten, wondering why they're having all these digestive issues or nervous system issues or cognitive issues, not able to pinpoint it because the test came back okay. So take it from here, Josh. 
That's a great point, Megan. And what's really interesting is that when they first discovered celiac disease, they were looking at symptomatology related to the intestines. Only. Like they were only only looking at the lining of the gut and damage being done to the lining of the gut. Yeah, exactly. So that's what guided the diagnosis and the classification of the disease celiac. But now we know there's this whole other class of issue called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And this is where the majority of the population who is reacting to gluten, this is sort of the, the box or category that the majority of people will fall into. Exactly. And they can be having symptoms that have nothing to do with the digestive tract, like brain fog, migraine headaches, whole bunch of different neurological issues, uh, nerve issues, fatigue, you mood, know, hormonal, mood, hormonal, nearly every symptom in the body is related somehow to either the gut or the brain and gluten can affect either and both. Exactly. The literature has shown cross-reactivity with a whole bunch of different items in gluten-containing grains. And what cross-reactivity is, is when the immune system attacks one of those proteins, but those proteins, remember we are what we eat, we make our body out of food. So sometimes they look like stuff in the food and the immune system goes and attacks those proteins in the food, but then, oh, the outside of your thyroid looks like that protein. Oh, your nerve looks like that protein and your immune system's smart, but not that smart and goes and attacks all of it. That's cross-reactivity. Right. And the other part of cross-reactivity is that other foods can also look like gluten inside your body. And what happens is that we're going to talk a little bit more about gluten elimination in a moment. But what happens is that people who attempt to eliminate gluten, they'll even eliminate a hundred percent, but they're not getting the results they want. They're not feeling better. They're not seeing the results. And the reason for this is that cross-reactivity that may not even be the antibodies attacking other parts of the body, but reacting to other things in the diet. So 50% of people who are reactive to the gluten protein are also reactive to proteins in dairy. Other common cross-reactors that research is finding are also some of the foods that people are going to weep at the thought of having to eliminate, but things like coffee and cocoa or chocolate, even quinoa can be part of it. There's a long list and we can include a link in our resources over at culinarynutrition.com forward slash podcast. There's a ton of foods that can cross-react with gluten. Yeah. And a lot of the foods that people go to after they have eliminated gluten. Yes. You know, uh, just an interesting case study or story One client that I had, she was 18 and had recently been diagnosed with celiac disease. So she was starting to get all the gluten-free items. And I wanted to run a panel on her. Uh, This is out of a lab called Cyrex that looked at cross-reactivity with other foods, other non-gluten-containing foods. And she ended up being sensitive to corn, was really, really high. There was other things that were sort of mid-range like sorghum and even quinoa, but these foods that she was replacing a lot of the gluten-containing foods with were still causing a reaction in her. And that became a very important clinical piece. Mm -hmm. And so don't give up hope. I think that oftentimes people will be like, oh my goodness, I don't want to know. But would you rather feel lousy or be worse building an inflammatory condition in the body by continuing to consume foods that you react to? So I think the next logical question is that we need to address is, are people actually more and more sensitive to gluten than they ever used to be? Like, are people actually more sensitive to gluten and there really are a greater number of people in this population? Or 
are we just way more aware of it and it's trendy and it's easy. And so I'm going to hop on that train because all the healthy people are avoiding gluten. Well, it's an interesting question to ponder. And I think parts of that are definitely true. What we do now know is that with celiac disease, rates are increasing by two, like they're doubling every 15 years. But, you know, to answer your question, why? Why is that happening? And I believe that it's the intersection of many different factors that make people more susceptible to reacting to these grains. It's almost like a combination of factors that create the perfect storm to become more reactive. Yes, it's definitely a perfect storm. That's like the exact words that I was thinking. Because, you know, let's look at some of the factors that make people more susceptible. Stress. Stress, yeah. And then more stress and more stress and more stress. More stress and more stress, yes. There's definitely a genetic factor, but um, stress is going to increase leaky gut, which can increase risk of celiac disease. Uh, We have way more chemicals on our food than ever before. We have way more chemicals in our environment than ever before, which do all sorts of things. I mean... We were just looking at a pesticide recently that they're spraying on our park near us. Yes. And I looked up the mechanism on how it worked. And what it does is it disrupts the digestive tract of these moths, basically creates massive leaky gut in these moths and kills them that way. So they're saying it's perfectly safe for humans. But if humans are still consuming microdoses of that stuff, what's it going to do to our intestines? Yeah. And it may not be the dramatic immediate death, just much slower. (laughs) So, you know, there's the common pesticide um, or herbicide Roundup uh, with the active ingredient in glyphosate. We know that that is definitely correlated with the increase in celiac disease. We have people eating lots of processed foods, which mess up the microbiome in the body, which cause more reaction to foods when we eat them. The glyphosate and the association with celiac disease is mainly because that is the end stage of celiac sensitivity that is tested in conventional medicine. But the glyphosate can also increase the susceptibility of non-celiac gluten sensitivity as well. It's not just limited to that one response or that one condition in the body. Right. I mean, from a functional nutrition perspective, we don't qualify things as diseases. We're looking for imbalances. So, you know, celiac is at the end of the spectrum for symptomatology. But if you're non-celiac gluten sensitivity, if you get like a little bit of headache from wheat, then you're considered sensitive to this protein and you definitely should eliminate it. There's no question. Another component that is contributing to the increased gluten sensitivity is also the dramatic amount of wheat being eaten. So when Josh talks about the, the herbicides and and glyphosate, that's being sprayed on the wheat that we are now eating. And so this is a chemical that was introduced into the food supply 20 or 30 years ago, not that long ago. And so as we eat more wheat, we're we're not just being increasing our exposure to these proteins, we're also increasing our intake of these chemicals that are known to contribute to leaky gut and intestinal damage and all these things that are increasing the rates of sensitivity to gluten and to other things as well in the diet. Right. So to summarize, this perfect storm is about multiple factors in our environment and our diet that are not our natural ways of being that are making us more susceptible to these proteins and to these different factors in these grain products. So Josh. Yes. Is gluten sensitivity on the rise or is it just a trend? Well, I think it's on the rise because from my perspective, We're looking at the clinical manifestation and more and more people 
are becoming sensitive to this. And it's also been shown in the research to be a problem for pretty much everyone. Wait a second. Hold the phone, Joshua Gitalis. You're going to say that every person on the planet reacts to gluten? I am. Now, when I look at my clients, right, and I look at their timeline and what might be helping them or hindering them, I'm always trying to think, you know, what do they need to eliminate? What do they need to take out because it might be causing a problem? And the evidence has showed me that this is something that should just come out, right? Because there's no way it could be helping someone. Right. No one is suffering from a gluten deficiency. Right. And so there's been a few papers published. There's definitely more research that needs to be done, but this is convincing enough for me to recommend that people make changes. One was in nutrients in 2015. And what they looked at was uh, celiac patients who have active celiac disease, celiac patients in remission, non-celiac patients with gluten sensitivity, and non-celiac control. So these four groups of people, and then they challenged them with gliadin to see what would happen to in their intestines. And what they found, this is a direct quote from the study, was increased intestinal permeability after gliadin exposure occurs in all individuals. So whether you're at one fully, you know, blown out end of the spectrum as a celiac, where you have villus atrophy and severe intestinal damage, or someone without even any symptoms who is the control group, you're going to experience some sort of damage to your intestine. So to sort of translate that a little bit, what you're saying is that people who, everyone's reacting to gluten. Everyone is having villi damage when they consume gluten. Some people are able to repair or recover more quickly so that they don't have as intense reactions or their reactions are subtle and subtle and subtle and they don't actually even feel anything that's noticeable, but that it is causing damage in everyone's intestines to some degree. Absolutely. So from a clinical perspective, which is where, you know, I work with people, it's like if I, we know that this is causing damage at some level, let's just take it out of the equation so we can try to get to the root of whatever the issue is as a starting point. Now, from a more global or macro perspective for every person in society wondering if they should eat that sandwich or not, it turns out that some people could probably eat that sandwich and not have an issue. And some people are going to move towards something more serious. We tested this theory, you and me, Josh. We've tested it a couple of times because we've always been predominantly gluten-free. I don't anymore have an extreme reaction. I did when I was dealing with Crohn's symptoms. But I'm, we're going to tell two stories. One is several years ago, I'd say six, seven years ago, it was springtime and we decided to order pizza from the local pizza place that offers a spelt crust and it was around allergy season. And you had been on a protocol to reduce your allergy symptoms, which had, which had included a very strict dairy-free and gluten-free diet. We got the pizza. We ate it. You were completely asymptomatic from allergies the night we went to sleep after eating that pizza. And what happened in the morning? I couldn't breathe. You couldn't breathe. You were like, your eyes were My like... My face was leaking like a faucet. It was like a switch had been turned yeah. on. And the other situation that happened was in 2013. And this was the last time we had gluten. This was the this was our last lesson, which I think a lot of people need to learn multiple times. Like they test it or they, you know, they're like, oh, this one last time, or maybe I'm still not, maybe I'm not sensitive to it anymore. Okay, go ahead. We were in LA and we went to this restaurant and the table beside us had ordered, they made these fresh organic loaves of bread and the table beside us had ordered this basket of bread with all these dips, which is basically like 
my desert island meal. I could live on that forever, bread and dips. So I convinced Josh to eat it, to order it, and we both ate it. What happened to us, Josh? Well, I actually got depressed. You got depressed. A few days. I remember feeling down, which never really happens to me. Um, we were on vacation, I was living on vacation. in a sunny, beautiful place. Yeah. And I was just thinking, like, why do I feel down? Like nothing happened. I'm trying to like evaluate. And then I realized it was the bread. And that sort of explained this unannounced, you know, no reason behind it feeling I was feeling in my brain. Yeah. Uh, which was being manifested as as my mood being depressed. And we know now that reactions to gluten can manifest, as I said before, anywhere in the body. And and mood disorders are a big part of it. Anxiety, depression, uh, even some more serious stuff. So, And I, I just got really, really tired, which was always the reaction I had to gluten, that I would just feel extremely fatigued the next day. Like I couldn't barely keep my eyes open. And that was it. We decided at that point we were going 100% strict. And I don't think to our knowledge, at least we've had any since then. We've probably been spiked, but never to the extent that we had a noticeable reaction. Right. And that's a choice we made because, you know, we're always looking to do better and feel better. All right. So what are some of the common tests that people can have or can get? And what are some of the challenges that we're seeing with, you know, if you go to your doctor and and I know there's different sort of practices in different parts of the world and we have people listening from all over the world, but we can use Canada because we know Canada. So you go to your doctor, you say, I think I'm reacting to gluten. The test they're going to give you is what? Yeah. The first thing they'll do is a, is a uh, blood test that looks at a couple antibodies. Now we know now that there's hundreds of proteins in something like wheat we know that there's many different iterations of gluten and they only look at a couple. So it's like the tip of the tip of the iceberg with that. Now, if that test comes back negative, then that's it in terms of their investigation. So if you don't react to the selection of gluten proteins that they test for, then they're saying you have no gluten sensitivity, no celiac, you're fine. That's correct. But if your numbers come back high, the next step is a biopsy. So then they'll send you in, they'll take a sample of your intestine. And what they're looking for is villus atrophy or a damaging of the, the microvilli. So if you think about a brush, like breaking off the bristles of the brush is what it looks like. And then if you have that under the microscope, you are diagnosed with celiac disease. If you're not, they still might not diagnose you. So what you see is that someone's having an antibody reaction or an immune reaction to the wheat, but they're still not told they're celiac and should avoid it. It's basically like early stage celiac where it could be prevented or reversed, but it's not visible by the biopsy. Exactly. And it's this, showing an immense imbalance in the body. And this can happen really often with children who may exhibit symptoms of gluten sensitivity. However, they haven't been on the planet long enough or eating these foods long enough to have complete villus atrophy and so are told they're fine. Go ahead, keep eating it. Absolutely. So there's more sensitive tests. Uh, a couple labs offer this. One is Cyrex Labs. Uh, another test uh, that looks at many other factors is, uh, oh, it's called a wheat zoomer. And these labs look not just at a few proteins, but many proteins and even other things that you could be reacting to that might not be related to gluten. So for example, you know, I know the Cyrex test looks at a couple opioid-like substances like gluteomorphin, 
which can make contact with the brain. And people get this feeling of addiction when they're away from that grain. Uh, they just want to eat more and more of it. And we can see if they're reacting to that. It looks at a whole bunch of different enzymes. It looks at all those different proteins. And it, so it gives you a much larger picture. It's not perfect, but a much a bigger array of, of things to look at. And then from a clinical perspective, when we see any one of those out of range, then we know that person's sensitive and it's just confirmation. So that's another way to look at it. So when someone is confirmed as gluten sensitive, it's fine for them just to, you know, eliminate most of the gluten most of the time, but here and there it's, you know, no problem. Well, Megan, can you be sort of pregnant? No, no, no. No, you know, it's the same with gluten. You got to cut it out one hundred percent. I mean, you know, someone who's celiac knows this, right? And that's the full manifestation of the issue. But it's the same with any other type of uh, sensitivity with it. You got to get it eliminated 100%. So that means that if you want to see the results, and we see this all the time. So my school, the Academy of Culinary Nutrition, and the Culinary Nutrition Expert Program is 100% gluten-free. Everything we do is gluten-free. And we do this for the very reasons you've said. If our intention with teaching our teachers and creating these programs and, and offering these workshops is for people to use nutrition to heal their body, we want to sort of weed out and not wheat out, weed out and remove those potential obvious causes of so many symptoms in the body. So we do dairy-free and gluten-free. You do gluten-free and dairy-free in your clinic. So clients can't even come see you until they've done this functional reset, till they've eliminated gluten, dairy, and sugar from their diet completely so that we can remove that potential sliver to the cause of whatever their issues are. And then you're able to sort of see what else might be out of balance. It needs, needs restoration or needs support. Let's take a quick pause here for a moment of culinary nutrition inspiration from a graduate of the Academy of Culinary Nutrition, Jessica Mitten. With prior training in holistic nutrition, Jessica used what she learned in the program to build on her existing business. She has since written Some Good, a Taste Canada nominated cookbook. Now here's Jessica to share her story. I am Jessica Mitten and I'm a 2015 graduate of the Culinary Nutrition Expert Program. The program taught me so much, including developing a blog, creating delicious, nutritious recipes, and laying out meal plans. The skills and knowledge I took away from the program gave me a foundation from which I wrote my very own cookbook called Some Good, and it got published. I've also been able to maintain a blog where I share recipes and lifestyle tips at somegoodliving.com. I want to thank Megan and her team for being so supportive as I continue to pursue and reach my goals. Your words of advice, support, and encouragement through the program and alumni group have helped me personally and professionally and will continue to do so during this ongoing, incredible journey. Links to Jessica's website and to pick up a copy of her book are shared over at culinarynutrition.com forward slash podcast. Just click on this episode for all the goods plus some extra bonus material. Now, if you're feeling inspired to get cooking, be sure to check out the free training I created just for you. This five-part video-based freebie is available over at culinarynutrition.com forward slash free training. You're going to love this little program. Now, let's return to our conversation. So in order to get the benefit, we cannot stress this enough, 
being a little bit gluten-free or eliminating gluten most of the time, if you're sensitive to it, you're still going to be having that cascade of reactions in the body, even if it's just a cracker. Yeah. And another trap people fall into is they have it maybe even every few months, which is still really good, but not enough. You know, if you look at the antibodies of someone who stopped gluten, who had celiac or was diagnosed with celiac, it can take up to two years to see zero antibodies in their bloodstream. Yes, it slowly decreases. But say, you know, I have gluten today and in six months I have it again. I've just re, you know, invigorated the whole immune response that might have been starting to calm down and gotten myself into trouble once again. What do you say to clients who come to you and tell you that? And, and I get these questions in my Facebook group all the time that their doctor had said that if they eliminate gluten and then bring it back in, they might react to it. So best to just keep eating it in small amounts. Or if they've eliminated, like you said, for two years, no longer have antibodies to it, but now want to get tested and are advised to bring it back into the diet in order to raise those antibodies to be able to test for them. So how do you address that? I would just say that's nonsense. <laughs> Can I you mean, be a little more clear? I mean, the bottom line, and I think what we're trying to stress here, is if you have anywhere from a very, very minor uh, symptom to something major, obviously, to any test that comes back positive in any way, you definitely want to avoid this stuff 100%. How long does it take if someone is avoiding it 100% to see the results? And I guess that would also depend on if they're having cross-reactivity and they're also eliminating the most common cross-reactor of dairy. So in your clinical experience, how long does it typically take for, for people to experience the results? The, the mind-blowing, energetic surge of awesome feelingness, I should call it. Well, it varies majorly from person to person. And especially because different parts of the body react in different ways to the gluten. So if someone is dealing with intestinal issues, you know, minor intestinal issues or something like IBS, they can ex start to experience benefits pretty quickly, right? Because that's a pretty acute process in the body. And also our digestive tract replaces itself every three to five days. However, if someone experienced uh, neurological issues because it was actually having cross-reactivity with the brain, well, the brain takes a much longer time to regenerate and to repair itself. So it could be a very slow and arduous process lasting from one to two years and even more. But the key thing that we look out for is, is gradual improvement over that time. Right. But also remembering, you know, you talked about the withdrawal, like within the first few weeks or even the first couple months, depending on what stage you're at or where you're at in your health, you may feel worse before you feel better eliminating it. But know that eliminating these things is not causing more damage. Absolutely. And assuming that's such you're a good point, Megan. Assuming you are replacing your the foods with with other better foods. Absolutely. I mean, you can replace gluten with other processed foods. Which yeah, I think is like white sugar is gluten free. White sugar is gluten free, <laughs> but we you know we talk about fooled by the label and in that episode about how people see gluten free, assume it's healthy, and you can still be eating. You're not going to get the gluten, but you can still be getting the blood sugar spiking starch fests. Let's leave off with some really tangible strategies that for people who want a gluten-free life, who know that they feel better without gluten, who maybe are being challenged by their family and friends to stick to it, let's give them some guidance on how to make this accessible. And I want to just caveat this by saying that when you decide 
to stick to this 100% and not be like, well, I'll have gluten on Sundays. It will be remarkably easy because what happens is that foods that contain gluten are no longer options. It's like if you had a peanut allergy, foods with peanuts are just not an option. And that, in some cases, is how you have to think about this. I love that, Megan. And it's definitely something that is one of the most common comments that I get back from my clients is that, oh, it's way easier than I thought. Or once I decided, it was like so easy, right? It's like the first denial (laughs) at the beginning, the denial. And I had that experience when I first learned about gluten from Dr. Thomas O'Brien many years ago at a seminar was like, really? Like gluten isn't every part of my diet. Everyone says that. To eliminate this. But we've also, we should say that we've been strictly gluten-free. We've raised Finley gluten-free up until now. When we go to dinner with our families, it's it's not an issue. We eat at restaurants. We it's it's really not an issue. And it's helpful that people are so much more informed now. And so it really comes down to the individual caring enough to make that commitment and also being okay with saying to someone else, thank you for offering this. I can't have any. And just keeping it as simple as that. Yeah, we've got a whole bunch of cookbooks upstairs in our kitchen. They're all gluten-free. So the resources today are just so abundant. And even the amount of websites and blogs and recipes online that are available to make gluten-free easy is just astounding. I, I've heard of a really good website. Do you know of any good websites, Megan? Um, how about com, which has over 300 recipes in it? Yeah, was a- I've got my cookbooks. And of course, the culinarynutrition.com blog has tons of resources. We've got links to all of that in our show notes. So how to stick to a gluten-free diet? The first and most important thing is to plan your meals. So if you know what you're going to eat, don't plan to put glutinous containing grains in it or grain-based products. Right. And this goes for planning the meals that you make and also planning meals that you might have out. Absolutely. Right. So if you know you're getting lunch that day at work, make sure that there's a good place nearby that you can get that gluten-free meal. Which brings me to the second tip, which is check with restaurants. And the the best way to check with restaurants, though, is in advance. So don't go to your local lunch place at lunchtime and start asking them a thousand questions about the ingredients. Don't call a restaurant during their dinner service and ask them a thousand questions. So call, leave a message. They'll call you back when it's convenient. And my experience, because I'm gluten, I'm gluten-free, dairy-free, and allergic to black pepper, is people are extremely kind and patient and helpful And they want you to come dine in their restaurant and they will work with you to make it work. So don't be shy about doing it. Just don't do it at an inconvenient time. So I basically have a list of restaurants that are friendly for us and that we go to and it's relaxing. It's not a stressful experience and it's easy to maintain our dietary choices. Yeah. Another tip that we would put forth is to find substitutes you love. You know, because so many people are sensitive now and so many more people are realizing that they can't eat this stuff. There's a lot of creativity coming down the pipeline in terms of alternative breads, alternative wraps, lots of amazing alternative things that don't have gluten in them, that taste good, are whole foods and are actually healthy. Yes, I feel like the show notes for this might be like just a link to the entire my entire website (laughs) because there's just there's so much now out there. Yeah, we just made cassava wraps. How delicious were those? They were so delicious, made with cassava. Uh, some coconut oil, a little bit of water, some sea salt. That was basically it. We set the dough, rolled it, cooked it, done. We actually had Finley help us roll it out. And one of the biggest, biggest, and maybe most important tips to stick to a gluten-free diet is pack your snacks. And this is often where all diet intentions fall off the wagon and into the fast food restaurant. 
He like rolls into the McDonald's and I don't know how I got here. Give me like five quick snacks that are gluten free that you usually take. Fresh fruit or fresh fruit and nut butter or fresh fruit and a coconut yogurt. I do seaweed snacks. Those are great. You can buy them already packaged. So I like to make my own because then it's less packaging. You can make your own granola, nut and seed or trail mix. You can do kale chips. You can do veggies and dip, edamame. That's a great snack. You steam a little edamame, sprinkle some sea salt, put in a container. You're good to go. And it's fun to eat. Roasted chickpeas, hard-boiled eggs, tons of packable, transportable options. And a lot of these, probably not the boiled eggs, but a lot of these you can actually pre-pack at the start of the week and throw in your bag. And you may not even eat them that week, but at least you have that backup if you really need it. Quite honestly, we love traveling, as we talk about quite often. And one of our games is to go into airport, like those kiosks. We usually, we always have our own snacks and stuff with us, but to go in and be like, what could we eat in here? And you can always find something. And we're probably stricter than the average person as well. But this has just become so abundant and so plentiful that it is absolutely 100% worth the effort to see how you feel. Don't we all want to just feel healthy and happy and fulfilled and content and be able to enjoy our lives and health issues get in the way of that. Here's a really cool side benefit of going gluten-free. You're taking out a lot of processed foods and you're finding alternatives for them. So just by default, it's like, instead of eating those gluten-containing crackers, I'm going to take some carrots and you've now not only eliminated the gluten, which is going to have its own health benefits, but you've added this incredibly nutrient-dense, awesome food. Which is why I think so many people who go gluten-free, whether they're reacting to gluten or not, tend to report feeling better because they're getting rid of a lot of these processed foods. I think we've answered the question that gluten-free is definitely not just a fad. The rates are increasing. And if you suspect you might be, why not just eliminate it? Give it a month or two months, 100% off, and see if it affects how you feel. There's no harm in trying. Thank you so much once again for joining us. In the event that you might now be sure a gluten-free life is for you, we have loads of resources to help set you up for delicious success. Head on over to culinarynutrition.com forward slash podcast to get access to all of the additional information. Everything we do at the Academy of Culinary Nutrition is gluten-free. If you want to go gluten-free and are craving the most delicious banana chocolate chunk muffin you've ever had, then head over to culinarynutrition.com forward slash free training. You'll learn how to make this delight from scratch and get a primer on gluten-free flours and what to use where and when. You're going to love it. Knowledge is important, but applying it is where the power is. As I always say, the best way to get started is to get started. Take what you've learned and start applying it in your life. Try going gluten-free. See how you feel. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you soon. Bye, everybody.